The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The frustration of the FCC during the last administration was that they did not say to American companies, hey, these protections are in place. Let's make sure that we use them, let alone, hey, we know there are other things that can be doing, such as the uh, framework developed by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and you need to be doing those as well. I'm Stephanie Pell, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 22nd, 2022. Fifth generation, or 5G technology, promises to bring high-speed, low-latency wireless infrastructure necessary for the smart era. But moving from the promise of 5G to a reality where 5G networks will deliver amazing and important new capabilities and services will require those networks to be secure. To talk about 5G cybersecurity challenges, I sat down with Tom Wheeler, visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution and former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, and Admiral David Simpson, professor at Virginia Tech and former chief of the Public Safety and Homeland Security Bureau at the FCC. They just published a new paper entitled, 5G is Smart, Now Let's Make It Secure. We talked about the 5G cyber paradox, three specific cybersecurity challenges they outline in the paper, and recommendations they make for addressing these cybersecurity challenges going forward. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 22nd. Tom Wheeler and Dave Simpson on Making 5G Secure. Tom and Dave, you've recently published a paper entitled 5G is Smart, Now Let's Make It Secure. To begin with, how should we understand and think about the significance of 5G, especially in comparison to 4G? What makes it special and what kinds of new capabilities and opportunities does it offer? Well, you know, Stephanie, uh, 4G was a great revolution and it opened the, the smartphone world to uh, all kinds of new applications uh, that we today can't imagine how we ever lived without. What 5G does is to move beyond the device in your hand or, or in your pocket or purse to make everything else smart 
and uh, and to allow the the future of smart cities, smart factories, smart cars, and take advantage of the fact that computer chips have become so small and so inexpensive that they are in everything and that the value of them being in everything comes from the fact that they can all be interconnected and controlled to deliver a whole new generation of services that shortly we will not understand how you're able to live without that either. It really shifts from an emphasis around the smartphone as the principal consumer utilization of 4G and before to a machine to machine interaction between these devices at the edge of wireless networks that really are made possible through the convergence of communications, compute, storage, and the instructions that can take advantage of that convergence at the edge. And that's what brings in this, in the military, we're calling it sense, make sense, and act. The ability to bring machine learning and AI into the community so that the sensors uh, that make up infrastructure, what was physical infrastructure, is smarter and anticipatory and can do wonderful things at the edge from that convergence. I've heard the two of you describe yourselves as 5G evangelists, but you're also realists, which leads me to ask, why did you write this paper? Oh, that's a simple answer, Stephanie. You know, I I think Dave and I both believe that success of the 5G promise depends on its security. That if you can't rely on the information being delivered securely, that there is uh, less of an interest in using it in the first place and thereby having a negative impact on the kind of promises we were talking about a minute ago. I would agree and add that it's because we're so excited about the promise of 5G. I mean, the ability to anticipate and reduce risk in our lives, to bring in new functionalities to both uh, citizens, consumers, businesses, it, it really underpins a competitive advantage uh, for the United States that is very personal for citizens, that builds up to communities, ultimately to companies, but that if we don't recognize the software orientation of the network itself and its exposure, increased exposure to uh, cyber attack, then we will not only when we get there have risks that we could have avoided, But it will take us longer to get there because the venture capital that should be coming up the sidelines to create this demand signal for these machine-to-machine capabilities will not manifest itself and will be later in getting to something that uh, the rest of the world has a different approach to those risks and could get there before us and beat us to the competitive edge. I want to talk about the cybersecurity challenges that 5G brings with it. 
Can you start by talking about what you call in your paper the 5G cyber paradox? Well, Stephanie, the the secret to the wondrous capabilities that 5G promises is that it is software-based and therefore the ability to do so many more things better than the old hardware-based networks of the past. And, and, And the paradox is that the software which creates these incredible capabilities is precisely the vulnerability. And and we point out that it takes a vulnerability in two forms. The first is that we all know software is hackable. So that's just point one in the discussion here is how do we secure something that is proven to be insecure software? And then the second is that the industry has implemented this software in such a way that opens the market for more suppliers of the capabilities than the traditional telecom network suppliers. And that when you open the aperture of suppliers, you open the aperture to attacks as well. You just create more attack vectors to the system. So, so it, it, is the, it is the nature that allows its great capabilities that also turns around and paradoxically has created its exposures. So focusing a little bit on what you say, the cold reality is that software can be hacked. How should we be thinking about this 5G vulnerability with respect to some of our most capable adversaries like Russia and China? First, we shouldn't fear going to 5G, right? I mean, a lot of these risks you don't address until you build out and experiment uh, and uh, figure out, well, how is it being exploited? And then iterate through the mitigations uh, for those exploitation vectors. So let's not be cowed into a, a, a bunker mentality. Uh, second, let's recognize that China has had a head start, if you will, at a, applying not so much the scientific uh, uh, or, or early parts of research around 5G. There's been lots of academic and engineering work done in the United States about 5G. But China early on recognized that this took coordination between the uh, academics, the engineers, the companies that would build these systems, the companies that would operate these systems, and then out into the communities, the regions and the cities that will be bringing the smart aspects of uh, machine learning and AI together through this increased wireless edge. And they've got a different approach to governance. You know, we know that in, a gov- in an autocratic nation, uh, it's, it's much easier to determine who's responsible for what and uh, define risk ownership. Similarly, in Europe, uh, Europe has been working on the same 
challenge and through their regulatory body, through their industry associations, GSMA, uh, they've been working iteratively uh, with the companies that are European and leaders in this area, Nokia and Ericsson, on how to address risk. We have been averse to having a, a government engage directly in the market to determine risk ownership and uh, have wanted to, one, make the leapfrog towards software-based because we perceive that to be an advantage and how we might catch up uh, with China and play to our strengths and Silicon, our Silicon Valley culture and history. But at the, the same time, we didn't fully recognize that creating a, a demand signal in the market uh, for using these systems was dependent on addressing the risk factors associated with deployment. And it's really that area that we seek to highlight is to, to get that demand signal confident or, or that demand signal going through confidence in the deployment of uh, software-defined networks associated with 5G. And in terms of the U.S. focus on the vulnerabilities, you know, they're both the executive and legislative branches have at times focused on eliminating Huawei, a, a Chinese company, 5G network hardware from, from our networks. In your view, has that obscured some of the other broader security challenges that result from 5G's substitution of software for hardware? Well, you know, Stephanie, I think that that's really uh, one of the things that prompted Dave and I to pick up the pencil in the first place. Um, in, in 2019, we wrote an article for Brookings uh, in which we talked about the Trump administration's focus on the security of Huawei networks, while worthwhile and, and important, was focusing on hardware at the very time when, as we have discussed a few moments ago, hardware is becoming less and less relevant. And so one of the reasons that we wrote this piece was to talk about, as Dave was just talking about, how if we want to be leaders in the 5G world, the United States is going to have to be responsive to these demand signals, to, to creating these demand signals that Dave was talking about. You know, the, the Congress passed the Wireless Infrastructure Fund as a part of the CHIPS bill, which was a billion, that's with a B, and a half dollars to help promote R&D for American companies to be able to be leaders in the 5G future. And our point is that if you're going to be leaders in that 5G future, you need to be leading with secure solutions. And, and fortunately, the spending part of that billion and a half dollars uh, on enhancing uh, the development of secure solutions is, is permitted under the legislation. Yeah, and I would add that China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, cyber criminals, 
absolutely capable of attacking U.S. equipment and a U.S. supply chain, and maybe even have a greater incentive to attack via those vectors than uh, just th- their own hardware. That said, the hyper-focus on Huawei in the 2018-2019 timeframe really sucked the oxygen out of the rest of the cyber challenge. And there was such a focus on rip and replace, uh, and people were equating that with, well, that's how we make it cyber secure. Well, I would note that rip and replace has been ineffective. We haven't ripped. We haven't replaced. There's still significant Huawei and ZTE equipment in the wireless infrastructure across the, the, the United States. Now, the policies are in place so that when it does get replaced, the hardware won't be there. The greatest concern that I think Tom and I had when we wrote the first paper was what led to the corporate decisions to use that equipment in the first place. And in many cases, lack of an effective cybersecurity program within those companies led them to not even consider supply chain risk, to to not have CISOs for their companies. You know, there's over a thousand wireless service providers across the United States. And we tend to think of the top three. And then when you get beyond that, you can't mention too many. But these are all interconnected. And it is so important that we expect, really, a degree of cyber competence for any interconnected uh, service provider for these wireless broadband capabilities. That's a really good point that, Jay, that Dave just made that's, that's worthy of emphasis, and that is that we're talking about an interconnected set of different networks owned by different companies. And so what one company does can affect everybody else. So the message about the importance of having 5G cybersecurity is something that applies not just to the the big folks who you're always seeing their advertisements on television, but to everybody. And even the big folks can be affected by what the little folks uh, in small rural areas uh, are how they are behaving in their cybersecurity activities. So, Tom, it, it seems that you're saying on the one hand that in, in some respects, the, the 5G substitution of software for hardware is going to allow for supplier diversity in a way that we just didn't have before. But that supplier diversity is not necessarily synonymous with cybersecurity. Am I understanding you correctly? I I think you just hit the nail on the head, Stephanie, that, that, uh, you know, when we were defining cybersecurity as, oh, my goodness, you can't allow Huawei or ZTE equipment into your networks, then the let's have a diversity of suppliers was a logical response. The software that is 5G enables that kind of diversity of suppliers. But as we say in the paper, it's a mistake 
to say that supplier diversity is the same as cybersecurity because each of those suppliers and the suppliers to those suppliers themselves represent a new potential attack vector, which, as Dave said a moment ago, nation states and criminals are hard at work to try and take advantage of. Stephanie, you know, diversity, supplier diversity is a wonderful thing. Uh, And when you have more choices in a market, you typically can get better results over time from that market. But there are areas where that diversity breaks down and our negative externalities are there. And cybersecurity is one of those areas. Uh, If uh, the diversity was to lead to better cybersecurity, it would mean at the point of sale, one could make an intelligent decision around the uh, value of cybersecurity to a a service that you're providing or a consumer could, could make that. It is really hard to have a consumer assess in a meaningful way the cybersecurity of a given company. Uh, you know, some of our best, our iconic uh, uh, software companies that work every day at cybersecurity still get attacked successfully. Uh, you know, we just think of, uh, of of Microsoft and Apple and, you know, you, you, you work your way out to the edge for uh, uh, so much of the software today that fuels our information economy, and they've all been successfully attacked. So to have supply chain diversity and more entrance into this market, smaller companies enter enter this market, if at the point of sale, one can't make a differentiation into the effectiveness of one cyber program over another cyber program, it's just not something the market itself is going to resolve to the the level of satisfaction that as a society we want and should expect. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? 
Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still 
one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. The topic of inter interoperability should also be mentioned in a discussion about supplier diversity and multi-sourced infrastructure, correct? So that leads me to ask you about the Open Radio Access Network Protocol, more commonly known as the ORAN. Oh, so what is the ORAN and how does it further exacerbate 5G security risks? So this is part of the exciting part, right? I, I mean... Uh, standards, when they're done well, will increase supply chain diversity uh, in a way that is very helpful, uh, right? The standards define uh, interoperability so that you can connect one company's provision of the of the core within 5G to another company's distributed unit, to another company's radio unit, all controlled by a fourth company's radio intelligent controller, you know, and maybe a fifth company's management of the cloud at the edge or the multi-axis edge computing. So those are really good things. And within the open source standards for what's referred to as ORAN, there's an excellent working group, working group 11, that is developing implementation guidance to ensure that those interoperability standards mean that you can not only connect those uh, different layers, but that you can improve security end to end across that effort, across the different layers. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the ORAN Alliance, their implementation guidance isn't required. Uh, there's nothing that penalizes a company that implements in a different manner or keeps something proprietary or just chooses not to put into place a more costly element of it, and that the companies that make up the ORAN Alliance uh, come from countries all around the world. Uh, so where we thought we would have a real national advantage in moving to software-defined networks uh, through ORAN has turned out into an area where software coders around the world are playing a significant role, including China and other places around the world that we might perceive to increase the risk of our implementation. So you identify 
a third area of vulnerability in your paper, you say that there is an absence of meaningful oversight of 5G standards and ORAN protocols. Um, specifically, you say there is no comprehensive identification and assignment of risk responsibilities inherent in end-to-end 5G services as diverse as the Internet of Things, smart cities, robotics, and industrial automation. And as I understand it, uh, based on actions taken by the FCC in the last administration, the 5G security standards that do exist, and Dave, you sort of hinted at this in your last answer, are only voluntary. Can you talk more about these concerns? Yeah, well, I think Dave just put his finger on it, uh, as, as you point out, Stephanie, that let's start with the 5G standard itself. It has security improvements over the 4G standard, but those improvements are entirely voluntary as to whether or not the wireless companies put them into practice. Uh, And then you go to the broader issue that Dave was just talking about insofar as ORAN. And ORAN is also, well, here is a model of how things can be done, but you don't necessarily have to do it that way. And the frustration of the FCC during the last administration was that they did not say to American companies, hey, these protections are in place. Let's make sure that we use them, let alone, hey, we know there are other things that can be doing, such as the uh, framework developed by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and you need to be doing those as well. And instead, they just had a, well, let's just, you know, laissez-faire, you can decide uh, what you want to do. And that leads us back to the point I was making a minute ago, which is that because these networks are interconnected, poor cyber hygiene in one network can undo the good cyber hygiene in others. And neither uh, Tom or I are at all suggesting that the government should be in the middle of defining the specific technical standards themselves. What we're really suggesting here is that the government should make clear that cybersecurity is an essential part of this particular critical infrastructure market. Uh, It's the foundation for so many other critical infrastructure verticals that we really need to build this from strength. And that in ensuring that there is a clear expectation that cybersecurity is a duty of care uh, for the companies that uh, seek to build equipment or sell services in this particular critical infrastructure vertical, that they anticipate how their service or their uh, systems might be attacked and in a proactive way work within their own companies and work with 
their competitors and their partners uh, in the industry to themselves develop the specific technical mitigations to address those risks. But those risks uh, need to be addressed and that uh, the agile uh, introduction of uh, new capabilities, new functions, as well as the agile response from cyber threat actors would suggest then that those charged with government oversight have a regular, a frequent interaction with the industry to have a, a collaborative view of this risk space uh, and the responsibility of those charged with oversight is to spot that risk, to admire when the industry uh, self-addresses that risk, to call out when they don't. Uh, and if after calling out unaddressed risk, it is still not addressed to represent the uh, equities of consumers and communities to provide incentives or maybe subsidies to um, address the risk in the seams, the, the risk that uh, winds up being a traditional commons. So that leads me to observe that in your paper, while you paint a dire security picture, there is a bright side. You say that we know what to do, that the efforts, for example, of the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency and NIST to address cyber risk illustrate that our cyber professionals know what to do. So we're not starting from scratch here. And to move things forward, you make four specific recommendations in your paper. Um, and I'd like to talk through each of those. And and so, Tom or Dave, pick your favorite one to start and tell us about it, please. Well, let me let's let's back up for a second, and 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 before we get down into each of those, and and have the thirty thousand foot view for a second here, Stephanie, and and that is that it it, it is important to view the cybersecurity challenge as a management challenge more than a technical challenge. Okay, that 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 it is not necessary to go out and invent new technology to solve problems, but it is necessary to put in place practices using ever-evolving technology that can assure um, ever-evolving cybersecurity. And, and that, and then I'll go to the, the first of the four and, and Dave can do the, the next one. We'll just play tag team here. But, but that means that, as we've been saying throughout here, that everybody needs to have that kind of management focus and management discipline that because all of the networks connect, as I've said before, the weakest link cannot be allowed to define the cybersecurity of the network. So the first thing that has to happen is an understanding that these management practices are applicable in every single one of the of the interconnected networks, regardless of who they are owned by. Well, as we we uh, uh, tick off the four, and and Tom outlined the first, right? Companies must recognize and be held responsible 
for a new cyber duty of care that they anticipate how their products and services might be exploited uh, and work with their colleagues to address ahead of attack. You know, in, in Stephanie, you worked at West Point for a couple of years, right? Up at West Point, when we were working with uh, the challenge of improvised explosive devices, we would talk about to the right of the boom after the explosion would happen. That's not a very satisfying part of the the, the kill chain, if you will, to be focusing on. We really want to move to the left of the boom uh, and anticipate how uh, uh, systems could be attacked. And that leads to the, the, the second piece where we think that government should establish a new cyber regulatory paradigm that is as agile as the industry it is charged to oversee and that uh, there be professionals at the uh, regulatory agencies uh, that are able to communicate in the right technical details, not only with the industry, but with the professionals at DHS and CISA, with U.S. Cybercom, and regularly ready to go into the details of uh, how these systems and services might be attacked. But to focus on their part of this, which is really recognizing where the market isn't naturally incenting the closure of those risk gaps and in recognizing the market shortcomings really do so in a way that first tries to get the market to be more effective in closing the short companies and doing that through consumer transparency, uh, sharing information about when companies were attacked and what was done to improve for the, for the next uh, attack to have a device focus and look at, well, what do we connect to these networks? You know, while we were at the FCC, we did a, a, a notice uh, of inquiry around, uh, well, shouldn't we be defining some best practice hygiene around devices uh, and having uh, uh, the device community communicate in a way that can allow the market to uh, help drive the, the, the right kind of outcomes we want? To recognize that the uh, trickle down of, well, let's just do this well in DOD and federal agencies and through our increased obligations of contracts that that sooner or later others will see that uh, and uh, respond appropriately, that 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 trickle down approach hasn't worked. It has created a smaller defense industrial base as we put more barriers to uh, be an innovative company in that space and caused others to say, well, I'm not going to uh, compete there. I'm just going to sell in the open market. And finally, to work where the gaps aren't being addressed to incent through uh, uh, subsidies the areas that are truly a market commons, uh, you know, that part that is not a single responsibility of a given 5G layer or 5G company, but really should have the end-to-end ecosystem coming together around uh, risk reduction that will benefit all. So let me just let's let, you, you talked about our four points. Let's 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 do one, two, three, four, real fast here, just to recap for the for the listeners. One first point: it has to be uniform and cover all networks because, and it needs to be at the network level. Um, because the weakest link problem of, of, of networks. Secondly, that since we know what to do, we need to expect that it gets done. 
and have a requirement and an expectation that it gets done. Thirdly, we need to have an inspect of that expect with light touch oversight by a regulatory agency. As Dave appropriately says, it's agile in, in its approach and light touch so that we know that the things that we know need to be done are being done and are being done by everybody. So that's the that's three of the four going backwards up the stack. And then last, because this is a national security issue, because this is uh, uh, this affects all networks in the United States, because we have made it a national policy that we will make sure that everybody has access to high-speed broadband. We need to also make sure that the American government is willing to step up and pay whatever that additional price may be so that, oh, we can't afford it, is not an excuse. We know what to do. We know that that it needs to be expected. We know it has to apply to everybody. We know it's a national priority that deserves national funding. And that's the package. I would note that you, throughout the paper, talk about this as a whole of networks challenge. And so just to reiterate your last point, the statement, well, we can't afford it, is just not an answer we can afford with respect to the challenges that you've identified. Yes. You know, Americans across the country have have voted, uh, they've communicated that access to broadband and access to broadband to include wireless is an expected universal service across the country. We want it to be there so that our kids can be competitive in school with their research. We want it to be there to improve public safety outcomes and reduce risk in communities. We want it to be there so we can bring small businesses and medium and large businesses out to the heartland of the United States and have them be competitive wherever people choose to live. We want that universal service for broadband access to be a competitive advantage, not just in our own lives, but in the whole of nation around global markets. Uh, so in accepting the universal service goal, that we should recognize that if it's not secure, it won't have achieved its value proposition. We do know what to do here. We do have the world's best uh, cyber professionals And if we approach this universal service expectation with the aspect of it's smart, now let's make it secure, we have the opportunity to do that in a manner that hasn't been done around the rest of the world and turn that into a positive market differentiation for uh, 5G US. Uh, And I think that's the part we're really excited about, that, that this is an opportunity for the nation uh, really to, uh, uh, while we weren't necessarily first to 5G everywhere, let's be first to secure 5G that has the kind of confidence required to bring out the venture capital, the community uh, uh, acceptance of the smart aspects of what the network can produce. 
So is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Wow, this is we, we've covered the waterfront here. I think the bottom line is we believe in 5G. We believe that there can be security in 5G. We need to do more than just admire the technology and the security challenges. We need to do something about it. And as Dave just eloquently said, and when we do something about it, it will create new domestic security and international opportunities that uh, are important to American leadership. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.